little touch pass there. Benson waiting, cuts in, he scores! Oh my! Here comes Zach Funk, right wing side. Zach Funk to right and he scores! Drops it back. Minton shoots, scores! Razor Minton makes it six to nothing. Welcome in to WHL Unfiltered. Uh, pleased to be joined by my co-host Sean Mullen and also the, uh, the president and general manager of the Saskatoon Blades, Colin Priestner. So how's, how's life been treating you, Colin? Pretty good. I mean, uh, can't complain. Just uh, had the big milestone 40th birthday weekend in, uh, in Texas. My friends and my brothers uh, took me uh, to a couple of playoff games in, uh, in Houston and Dallas. It was a pretty, uh, pretty great weekend uh, connect with uh you know some of my lifelong best friends and and bro uh, my brothers who i don't get to see all the time so uh i'm i'm great yeah happy birthday quite an experience i'm sure and uh i know we were just talking off air you're not necessarily a cowboys fan so you didn't come back heartbroken uh, but <laughs> that going down to dallas for the game i'm sure there was quite a few people that were uh in stunned silence pretty quickly yeah it was a bizarre like we went to the, uh, the Houston game uh, on Saturday, which was, you know, they were a two-point underdog, but, you know, a closer game was expected, but, like, the crowd was on its feet from the moment it started and never left their feet. You could just feel the, the home, ice advantage, home field advantage, I should say, was, was outstanding, and C.J. Stroud was awesome. And then you got this feeling, like, five minutes into the, the Cowboys game was just quiet. Like, they kept putting these Michael Irving – uh, Michael Irving pump up videos on the, and he was just going mental trying to get the crowd going, and and they would go for that, and then there'd be a couple bad turnovers or a couple bad, uh, you know, and then it was just it was strange that Green Bay was not even a, a great team was just marching the ball down the field all day, and it was just really stunned silence for most of the day in the crowd. So definitely a different experience with a hundred thousand people there, and there certainly was some Green Bay fans like it was fairly loud whenever they scored a touchdown, but. Other than that, it was it was a really surreal atmosphere. Would would you say I've, I've seen this comparison, so I didn't I didn't come up with it, but are the the Dallas Cowboys the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs of the <laughs> NFL? Our, our friend, me and my friends were talking about that last night. We someone sent a picture of uh, Dak with a, a Leafs logo superimposed on their helmet, and it was kind of funny. But it, it does feel that way that they're they're a team that hasn't hasn't had their success, and they always kind of feel like. Uh, you know, I know Dak didn't want to put on the hat for the division title, and it was like we're this is our Super Bowl year, and then they just didn't seem comfortable even five minutes into the game. It just seemed like they were disjointed, and and uh, you kind of got the feeling that an upset was was possible after you know two or three drives, which you know can happen in any sport, but it's a cruel sport that has one game playoff. I mean, um, totally different than a 
NHL or NBA or WHL series where you can, as we saw last year, get off to a slow start in a series and find your way back into it. And this is like you throw one bad interception and all of a sudden like the pressure is on that if you throw another one, your season could be over. And sure enough, it was. So um, it happened with Flacco on Saturday and then it happened again with Dak on Sunday. So it's, it's, uh, it was really interesting to be, be at the, at the games though, because uh, you know, uh, it just was, it felt like a, a bit of a changing of the guard with uh, Stroud and love coming through with huge games and, and then the older 30, 30 and 38 year old quarterbacks kind of struggling. Well, and to be fair, the Cowboys have won in uh, the last 60 years. So slightly, slightly different, but uh, now speaking of trying to break, you know, long droughts without championships. Nice segue. Yeah. I think it's been 60 years for the blades. So you're right (laughs) on the money there. But I mean, you guys got aggressive this year and we've had conversations before where, you know, you have said, uh, having been through what you had to go through to rebuild your team after, you know, a couple of years really going all in, you would be very hesitant to be as aggressive as the Blades have been in years past. Now, I think you guys were certainly aggressive this year. I wouldn't necessarily compare it to, say, the Memorial Cup year, but more aggressive maybe than, uh, certainly than we've seen since you've been the general manager. So take us through the thought process and your mentality in making those decisions and and trading those future assets, you know, why this year has it been a change in you know your approach? What's your thinking as you went through that process? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question and certainly one that's uh, fair to ask, given that I have been pretty vocal in the past about not wanting to ever sell the farm. And I guess there's you know two or three kind of factors I would say. One is you know, I guess if not now, when, like we felt this was probably the best team we would kind of have over a, if you look at a 10 year span or you don't really know what the future brings after five, 10 years, but you know, we felt like what we had was pretty special on paper and experience wise, given the the playoff run of last year, making do a conference final, uh, coming back from three, nothing down, coming back from two, nothing down to beat Bedard in the first round. Um, you know, getting humbled in the third round by, by a great team. And then, you know, it's our third and fourth year with, with this core of players and five years for Charlie, Wright And those kind of guys. So if not now, when, like if, if we kind of just thought to ourselves, like there is, there wasn't at the time, I guess a juggernaut team that was like Seattle last year or, or, Cam, you know, you knew Kamloops was going to do something, which they did. And, and then you had Winnipeg with like seven or eight, nine drafted NHL guys. And, Seattle had six or seven world junior guys. Like it was just, we were, we, you know, we were one of the best teams in the league last year. And I don't think our goal was to win a championship. Like if obviously you say that is, but like, I think for us getting to the conference final was a huge achievement. And then what we wanted to do is, you know, give Winnipeg an absolute run for their money. And because of attrition from the first two rounds and some injuries, we just weren't able to. So I felt like with the combination of experience we had, plus the roster we had on paper and the fact that in the past, three or four years we haven't really sold off anything or we haven't we haven't traded any first round picks or anything uh that we didn't have two of i guess we did trade a first last year but we had two firsts so um we'd always gone into each draft loaded up even if we've had really good years the last five or six years so we were able to kind of not sell the prospect farm which was another big factor like you know the 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 trading rules have made it so you can't uh you can't really go out and you can't trade any of your top prospects that are signed and everybody tries to sign all their top guys who are 15 and 16. So 
that kind of saves teams a little bit from themselves because the old currency used to be, oh, okay, you want Fraser Minton. It's like, okay, well, who's your first rounder from last year and who's your first rounder from the year before? So you're 16-year-old, you're 15-year-old, and then maybe a 17-year-old and maybe one first. But now you can't even trade those guys, you know, even if you wanted to. So it, it kind of makes more picks the new currency. And I guess the trend now has been like, teams after after they take their run then they you know if they have a asset or two left in terms of a high-end player that they could trade off next year or the year after and recoup some of those firsts but we felt really good about our pipeline because we've had two or three really good drafts in a row without missing any picks we've had last year we had three second rounders in the 2008 group and you know we wouldn't trade any one of those kids for a first rounder right now i mean riley bud's like the top goalie in the entire sports school league as a 15 year old um we've got uh olsen who's just an animal center he's like a real zach ostop chuck type guy who's playing and having an unreal year in edge and then uh we have um you know our third our third pick that that draft was uh, uh a boy that's playing right now in uh in calgary and uh for the buffaloes and he's just having an outstanding season like i think he's almost two two full points a game and um cooper williams so it's you know those are guys that they're all coming next year. You know, you couldn't trade them even if the team wanted them. You can't trade them if they're signed. So, you know, you start your draft with three guys like that, that you've considered like all first round level players. And it makes the, it makes it easier to stomach. Cause you know, you're not going in with no, like when we took over the blades, there was no picks, but also no prospects. Um, so that's a big difference too. Like they, they didn't have any drafts because the previous two or three drafts were empty from the Shen deal. Um, and then the draft with the Mem Cup year was empty. So there, and then there was no picks for three or four years after that because of that deal. So we don't feel like we have empty cupboards. We have pretty full cupboards. I think obviously we have some work to do with our, if you look at like the 12, 11 and 10 year olds that we currently don't have any picks for and maybe 13, uh, for this draft, uh, the 14 year olds, we don't have any picks for in the top five rounds. So we'll have to get creative, but you know, we've been able to recoup a lot of seconds, thirds and fourths in the past years with 20 year olds, because we're, we're going to have seven or eight to choose from and you can only keep three. So, um, you know, we're, we're pretty confident that we can recoup a lot of those seconds and thirds and fourths. It's just going to be about whether we can ever, how do we recoup the first and what's our organizational plan. But um, yeah, we just felt like this is the other, the other big reason behind it. Um, obviously it's a detailed answer, but um, the other big reason behind it was, we felt like we were in first place in the league without any of the rentals. Like we had, we had Minton, what we acquired at the end of November, but he only played a couple games and went to world junior and then Mollendike left for world junior. And then we didn't have Suze Delev until I don't know three or four games ago. We've had Babcock for one game. So we didn't feel like we were going out and like buying ourselves a team from, from the middle of the standings and buying ourselves a chance. Like we felt the group we had was already in first and then you add three or four world junior level players to that and all of a sudden you know now we get to really cook with fire and and see what we're all about but that was that was what was huge to us if we were in third or fourth place we certainly wouldn't have gone out and added because we we said at the beginning of the year like it has to be a a no-brainer for us if we're going to go all in and and i guess that we we felt like it was so um you know that's kind of uh that's kind of the three or four pronged answer as to why we did what we did you know, Colin, I've been wondering and, and looking forward to the opportunity to ask you this, but, you know, how much did losing Tyler Wong, or excuse me, um, Kirby Doc, how, how much did losing Kirby Doc to the NHL early uh, uh, influence, you know, 
kind of a change in mindset because you know that should have been a year that you guys were poised to to really do damage in the league and and turns out your players were too good in, in that case and you know so you had the opportunity but then you know in some ways they kind of pulled the rug out from underneath you you know out of your out of your control did did that kind of change the way you looked at things yeah i mean that's that's like the all-time ironic one because it's you know we always say like oh like the most lopsided trade in the NHL like you sometimes look back eight years later and you're like geez it was actually the opposite of what everybody thought and in this case like we spent three or four months like watching every camp scrimmage of Kirby's every preseason game every regular season game to start the year to see, you know when will he be back will he be back and the Blackhawks were really coy about whether they weren't sure whether they were going to send him back or not and then some nights he'd play eight minutes and you know we'd get whispers that maybe he'd you know, rather be they'd they'd rather have him playing like you know twenty five minutes a game with us, and then and and because he didn't come back, you know, we didn't add much that year. We were in the middle of the pack, and and we had a good run going. But then all of a sudden, COVID hit, and I remember like if we would have if Kirby would have been sent back like three weeks before COVID hit, we would have probably traded a whole bunch of stuff and thought like, okay, this is our year now. We got Kirby. Maybe you go try and get a Byram or a Cousins or whoever, like some top end guy that maybe was um, other teams were asking about at the time, and um, and and you end up like you know the pressure's on to go find a superstar, a second guy, and if you had Kirby and a number one defenseman or something like that, then then you feel like you could win it, and then all of a sudden the season's canceled for all of us, and and if we had gotten Kirby back, we would have spent all that stuff and had like one week with him, and. and you know, in exchange, you know, it kind of saved us from doing that because he didn't come back. So, uh, you know, you feel for the teams that like, like Kelowna that went all in for their Memorial cup and didn't even have a chance to play a game. And it's not like they, uh, the league, the league doesn't say, Oh, sorry for the inconvenience of the, the pandemic. Like here's your first rounders back. Cause you didn't get to play games. Like it's everybody just kind of was left with what they, what they had already spent. So we were really fortunate. Kirby didn't get sent back because the pressure would have been on big time to add, and, and we didn't, um, you know, so that, that's, uh, it, you know, but it did, it, it was an interesting thing because we the year before with Kirby as a 17 year old, I think we had the best record in the league after December 1st, we finished second or third in the league and we, we lost to Prince Albert in the playoffs, who was the best team in the league. And, um, everyone thought that the next year was going to be our year, but then you never know. Sometimes you don't get Kirby duck. I'm sure, uh, Chicago, I'm, I'm sure Seattle thought that Kevin Korchinski would be back this year. And I'm sure Wenatchee thought that, you know, Zach Benson would be back this year. And those are just out of our control. And you're as happy as you are for the kid because you love the kids that, that go on and they're always special. Um, it could be really damaging if you put all your eggs into that basket of them coming back, whether you want them to help win or use them to rebuild your cupboards. So um, that, that was a really fascinating year. It was like the thing we wanted more than anything for three or four months ended up being the, you know, the, the perfect thing to not have happen. Well, yeah. It, and at the same time, you know, all those conversations we've had about um, selling the farm, when to do it, when not to, whether you would or not, how influenced are you by the teams that went for it last year being able to recoup the amount of assets that they did? Now, I know you're not looking to be, you know, riding the roller coaster and going up and down like that, but seeing all the assets poured in by Seattle and 
Winnipeg now, Wenatchee and Kamloops, and that they've been able to recoup basically, you know, a significant portion of what they what they sold to go after it last year. Does that give you a little more confidence that if you know things do turn for you guys at some point, you're able to recoup some of what you spent? I think I mean it shows that there's a a fairly reliable blueprint out there that says like if you have top end players or really experienced players that like you know have tons of playoff games or you've got guys that are world junior level players or those types of guys that you know clearly there's going to be a market that uh clearly there's going to be a market that you can recoup a lot of picks back if you want especially because of the trading rules right we can't trade young prospects so if 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 you can't go and say okay i want your like you guys talked about a few weeks ago like if it's a bar loggy or something who is 16 years old and he's just come off being fourth overall and he's not going to help your team as much as a young guy trying to win a championship, it's like, okay, that's the first name that comes up. But now we can't even ask, you know, they, they can't be traded. So there's no, the first name that comes up is either an 18-year-old that you probably don't even want to even entertain moving because if you're, generally speaking, at 18, they're already helping you win. So do, subtracting them doesn't mean a whole, it doesn't help you a ton. Um, you know, it could happen for sure, but but it's less likely. And then 17s, 16s, and 15s aren't really traded much. So the 16s and 15s aren't at all. And then 17s, it's kind of, you know, it has to be mutually agreed upon with the family and the player. So it's just picks now. It's just instead of two picks and a prospect or a prospect and a good pick, it's five picks or six picks or we've seen 10 picks or whatever. Like, um, so... I think everyone's doing their best within the limitations of the rules. And, and I, and I fully agree that if you sign a player and you, the list of players that I have at the Bantam draft are, you know, that are saying that we'll sign with you guys tomorrow is different than the list that Prince Albert has is different than the list that Portland has and different than the list that Calgary has. Like we all, you know, whether it's, it's geographical or if it's uh if it's the type of market they want to be in or the, what they think of your program or what they think of your coaching or whatever it is, everybody's lists are a little different. Um, there's some kids that say, yeah, I would sign with you guys and these three other teams. If not, I would go college. Like there's kids who say that. So, um, you get into that battle a little bit where, um, you know, you have to really, you know, it's, it just, it just adds a whole other wrinkle into the equation for me. So, um, so yeah, it's it's just a complicated game, and you got to do your best within the rules. And and I believe if you sign a player at sixteen, and or fifteen, and they've signed to be a Saskatoon Blade, and they like what your program's about, and they like what your coach or your plan for them is about, I don't believe that they should be like, okay, now you're going to this other market that's three provinces away, and with a totally different mindset or a totally different ownership or totally different coaches or like I don't I don't as someone who went through the NCAA process as a player, like if I committed to Eastern Illinois university to play tennis there, which I did, like it wouldn't have been cool at all. If two months in, they were like, Oh, you're now at Southern Mississippi. Like that's not where I wanted to get my education or that's not where I wanted to play for as a coach. So I don't think it's fair to trade kids that have committed to you unless the one wrinkle I would say to change would be like, if you have a 16 year old who signed, who doesn't didn't make your team as a 16 year old and there's another team out there and and they're playing midget and there's another team out there that uh, um, would like have them play on the roster right now because they're going young and rebuilding. Um, That's when I think we should be able to revisit because it's better for the player. It's better for the other team. And if they're not even on your roster, that's a different story to me. Um, Then if it's like an active 16 year old, that's just not playing a lot because he's 16, but he's on your roster. 
Um, it's different if, if a team has a spot for a guy, um, that, that would be something I would look at, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, a uh, really interesting when you're dealing with teenagers because there's a lot of factors that you don't get in professional sports when you're dealing with adults. You know, Colin, you're in an interesting position. I mean, similar to, you know, when, when Kelly was, was running the Wheat Kings or, or Brent and Red Deer in that, you know, you're the front of the house and the back of the house. You know, you're you're selling tickets, but you're also, you know, putting a, a team on the ice. So, you know, you kind of have, you know, Confucius say he who walked down the middle of the road gets hit by cars from both sides. And so, you know, you're, you know, as invested in the, you know, we go back to, you know, we, we can't have a show without talking about the 2018, you know, a Swift Current team. Well, Manny was worried about Manny and, and, and his success, and, and, and it worked. Whereas you're, you got to be concerned about the next year, year after that, ten years down the road. So how how do those factors kind of kind of push pull as far as you know loading up this year, like we saw, versus you know you know you got to sell tickets in, in in two years down the road when 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 maybe you know the the, the on ice product isn't as strong. I mean, what, what's it like to, to to balance all of that? Yeah, it's it, you know it's a astute observation that there's certainly. A difference if your, you know, management is also your ownership when when you're making decisions that are, you know, fundamental and, and decisions that are going to be lasting, uh, you know, two, three, four, five, ten years. Um, if you're, you know, a manager that has a board, a community-owned team, it's a certainly a different environment and a different uh, set of circumstances because, like you said, it could be someone that's the last year of their contract and they're trying to do whatever they can to make the playoffs or they could, you know, they have an exit plan or maybe they're not even going to be renewed or whatever. You, you have no idea what a, you know, a community owned team is, is a totally different entity because there's a kind of a bill being paid at the end of the day for, for it by the fan, by the, by the city. So um, if an owner wants to go all in, who's a, you know, private owner and, and he's also a manager of a team, then, he knows the consequences economically or he knows the consequences that could happen with attendance in the future years or, you know, you can create malaise with your fan base if you, uh, um, you know, are, are kind of trading all your assets all the time and, and, and going in big booms and busts, then your attendance is probably going to go in booms and busts and so is your, your fan interest. So um, you have to be really cognizant of that and I think we're, we're certainly that, and we don't do anything without uh, thinking of the short, medium, and long-term ramifications, especially when we're making trades that are involving two first-round picks or first and a second or good young player or an 18-year-old or something like that. So um, that's what I would say is uh, that's what I would say is the answer to that. And yeah, it's it's it certainly gives you a little bit more ownership over your decision making if your if your management and your ownership are the same or aligned closely. <laughs> Well, and you're also, I mean, kind of tied to that. I mean, you guys have also a unique situation that, you know, in, in, in a supply-demand world, you guys have an unlimited supply of, of arena capacity that, you know, you could, you know, fit 13,000 in there every night if if you had, you know, the, the, the team and, and the marketing and the appetite in the community. So, I mean, there's always, you know, that desire to, to find new ways different ways to, to to reach people and to to get to get people into the into the building and so you know i mean i don't know how that ties into the on ice product but i mean you're 
you're pretty i mean besides you know be good and they'll show up but you know I'm, you, you, how uh how much work are, are you involved in with uh with, with that side of the uh, of, of the coin yeah like we know the decisions that we make on the hockey ops side are gonna you know go hand in hand like we're averaging five thousand fans a game right now for the season which is something we never really that was always kind of our dream number from 10 years ago we didn't really think we'd you know, it didn't look like we were ever going to hit that. That was always kind of the big target. But then you find yourself there, you know, halfway through January. And is it the winning? Is it the culture of winning that we've had for the last seven or eight years where the t- fans in the city have come to expect a really good on-ice product? Uh, um, you know, or is it, you know, is it just that, oh, you caught fire? And, and, and you know, last year we, we had a, a great winning record. I think we were... 20 wins in our first 25 games and we we came back with a real you know i think we came with you know a really obviously exciting playoff run that got a ton of people in the city and interested in the blades again um and they were kind of saying oh we heard you guys were better the last few years and they came out and experienced it and then this year's kind of taken that into overdrive and i think we're 14 and one on home ice or something like that so that's certainly not hurt on the attendance side but yeah we, we understand that next year when we lose five or six really good players or seven really good players or whatever it's going to be um, that, you know, there probably won't be the same level of excitement. And then it's on us on the business side to create excitement in other ways. Um, and our, our team with Tyler Warwick and now Jeff Sargent, who's come from Toronto to head up our whole business operations as the president of our kind of entertainment group, which is the rush, the blades and the baseball team, uh, as well as we manage the, the co-manage the arena, uh, now at Sastel center, like those, those guys have done an awesome job just, um, making really, you know, kind of making things out of nights that aren't generally good, like the, taking a Wednesday night and we've made these winning Wednesdays where you get a free ticket voucher to the next game if we win. And I think we've won all four of them. And, you know, it, in, it gets a way bigger crowd out on their Saturday or Friday game when you play next, because, you know, and and you could say, oh, well, they didn't pay anything to get in because they came on on Wednesday. But uh, you know, they're the same people who are buying a hat or you know spreading the word around town that the Blades are a good team and they're excited about the team and and it's kind of contagious from there. So um, certainly, I don't think we're going to average five thousand fans a game next year if we're not if we don't have this caliber of team like this type of team that we have right now. Like we haven't lost in regulation since I think November twenty second. So like you don't get teams like this very often. So certainly there's going to be a little wildfire about that team. And we're ranked number one in the country, which we've never been before as of today. So, you know, certainly we're seeing the wave of that on the box office side, but uh, yeah, we know next year and the year after, you know, they're probably not going to have the same level of, you know, high, the, the same highs that we're seeing this year in terms of our, our business side. Well, and on that note, you know, the run you had last year, I think about, and I relate back often to, to this because it's the only time I've got to cover a championship that closely. But I think back to 2018, one of the reasons that the Broncos had the confidence to go after it that year, and there was an extra sense of, if not now, when, was the experience of the previous year, the 2017 playoff run, where they took the eventual finalists from Regina right to Game 7. They won a great first-round series. Uh, your team went to the conference final last year against an extraordinarily good team uh, from Winnipeg. You had a great run. Your your players got that kind of experience without bringing in you know, a whole bunch of uh, assets to go after it. How much does the experience that they had from that um, make you go, this is a team that you know is, is ready 
to, to really go after it this year. It's similar to Seattle last year. You know, we've seen it many times. You take that first big step, and then, you know, when you're kind of peaking at your cycle, that's when a team that's had that experience can really benefit from it when they go after it. You know, how did that play into your, your thought process? Hugely. I think I you see it at all all sports like you know you have the young team that everyone's talking about and they have the great run they make it to a conference final or whatever it is and everyone says oh next year's their year but that was the seasoning they needed and um you know it happened in the nhl recently colorado and and and, and things like that where you, you know they take a step and then the next year it's the bigger step and maybe in, in pro sports maybe the cycle three or four years of of that building with the group or if it's the leafs it's it's the perpetual <laughs> the perpetual one but uh oilers kind of same thing with with where they're at but a lot of teams have had that that same premise where you need the experience to go and you know there's we have the most experience of any team in the league this year in terms of playoff games played and, and by a good margin i think so you know we're going to be having guys that you know if we're fortunate enough to get into the second and third and fourth rounds at that time they're going to be on their 30th and 40th playoff games some of those guys so um, and that's the core of our team. Um, so, yeah, we, I think if we had, you know, if we, if Bedard had just been too much for us to handle last year and we, we were down 2 nothing in that series and let's just say we lose it in seven or we lose it in six or whatever it was, you know, do we have that same mojo this year? Do we have that same ability to play two full months of hockey almost without, you know, losing a game in regulation? Probably not, even with the same team on paper. I think that was so valuable and I just, I don't think there's any, there's no kind of there's no elixir or there's no any kind of motivational speech you can give to players to to inject that kind of experience that they have so maybe that's why you uh you know maybe that's why you see swift current getting a geeky and uh moose jaw going and getting a savoy because you got guys now that have had that 20 20 game 25 30 40 games of playoff experience that you just can't replicate by you know by just um, you know putting the team on paper, like you, you need those guys that have been through it, and we're fortunate that we've had virtually an entire team that's gone through at least one really long playoff run, a grueling one, and, and for a lot of the guys, two or three. Hey, you talk about gaining experience, and you know this is a developmental league. You know, year to year, you you expect guys to contribute. You know, in their you know in their third year, and really really start making hay and. You know, you, that could apply to your, you know, behind the bench too, as far as a guy like Brendan Sonny. And, you know, after you guys, you know, did a good job of, of getting Mitch Love a, a, a job in the pros and, and you know, helping him develop and, and, and kind of brought that culture back to the, to the Blades. Whereas, you know, and Sonny's taking it in, in his own direction. You know, what's it been like having, having a, a quality coach like that, you know, behind the, behind the bench? Well, it's, it's, absolutely vital like if we didn't have the trust and belief that we have in zones we wouldn't have gone nearly this this all in and we wouldn't have made the investment we did with all the first rounders and second rounders and stuff like that like um we just have the utmost of confidence in him and he's a an unbelievable human being and and first and foremost he's extremely detailed um he cares so much about every player and he cares every day to have a a, a game plan for the day and and He's, you know, he's on top of things when, you know, things don't generally become big trends for us in the negative direction. Like they're very quickly nipped in the bud. They're addressed. Um, you know, I, we had four bad periods um, 
in a row at some point this year. I think we were in Wenatchee. We had two really good periods to start our road trip, and we we're out playing them and couldn't quite get the puck in the net. And then we had a bad third period, and then we played three bad periods in a row against Everett the next night, which is fairly rare for us to have like a, a stretch. And I mean, I've had teams where like you know you're five, six, seven games into a stretch where you're like, geez, like we got to turn this like what's wrong with our team right now and we're not ourselves and you know you look back it felt like it was a week long but it was actually just four periods of poor play but it was like I think they were all supposed to go to the Seattle Monday night football game as the staff and it was like they canceled that and it was all about like getting our team back to where it needed to be and, and addressing what was wrong and and we haven't lost in regulation since and that that just speaks to the professionalism those guys have and um, not just not just Brennan obviously it's his it's his uh, bench, but Dan, Dan De Silva and, and Wacy Rabbit being huge parts of that as well on the bench. So, um, you know, they're, they're just a fantastic young coaching staff. Every, all of those guys are in their thirties. They're young guys that relate to these kids, but they're also extremely hard workers that come every day with a game plan. And, and um, I think the positivity and the fun is the biggest thing that we have that, that comes from our coaching staff that, is so infectious and I think it's why players want to be in Saskatoon and stay here and play their whole careers here and is just because it's it's always fun every day at the rink even if it's a tougher day or we've had a tough weekend or whatever it's still going to be positive and fun um you know he'll get the work out of them but it'll always be fun and and every guy you know they want to be there they want to play until June like our guys do not want to go home before you know the end of the Memorial Cup like they don't want to be home early and Certainly we've had teams in our first few years where, you know, we didn't have that same mentality or vibe where it's just not where you're at with your culture, not where you're at with your with your leadership groups or your your core of players and or your staff. It's just not built that way yet. And luckily we've built that foundation and Sones is obviously one of the most important people in our organization. Now in terms of what you did add, you know, a lot of times you hear fans discuss you know, trade deadlines for good teams, and they think we, we want to add everything, right? But when you're winning and having the level of success that you had before you started making trades, I'm sure there's a little bit of anxiousness. How much do I want to disrupt, you know, what has been a successful lineup so far? So why the moves you made in particular, why did you feel like they were the right additions to what was already working for you? Yeah, Good question. I think the going into the year, I think we all felt like, you know, we thought that we had a really good shot to be a top contender this year. I think we all felt we were missing like two elite forwards. And on the back end, I think we felt we were going to be missing. We were missing two, not like we didn't have the pressure to go get a number one or a number two defenseman because we had Charlie Wright and Tanner Mollendike. So we had a big, we were extremely fortunate to have two number one guys coming back. Um, so it wasn't the pressure to go get like a, a world junior defenseman. We wanted to go get a puck moving right shot D because we have a lot of left shot D. We did that with Seatman early in the year, uh, really early in the year. And then we wanted to get like a hard nosed playoff type, hard to play big six, two defenseman. And that was Babcock. And that was the guy we targeted. So it doesn't always work out if you target two different guys and, and you get them both. Um, you know, I guess it's the team that gives the most picks and assets. And that was probably us in these cases where we were the most aggressive on them. Um, and then up front, uh, you know, we felt like we needed, we had Trevor Wong as our first line center. We felt like if we could get 
another first line center would be a, a matchup nightmare for teams in terms of if like we think Wong's one of the top two or three players in the league, and if we could go get another guy at that caliber at center ice, um, it would just make it extremely difficult on on teams to be able to have to send their second pair out to defend a you know a championship level first line, and and that's when Minton was. Our target from day one just because of the the two-way style he plays just fits in really really well with how we play you know we back check furiously you know we're always the one of the stingiest teams in the canadian hockey league the last three or four years in terms of goals against um and it's just our culture that we have here of back checking and caring about everything not just points and fraser was kind of the more research we did it was like every person you talked to was like this guy's a once in a one in a 10,000 type of kid when he just truly cares so much about the details, the back checking, the, the draws, the teamwork, the leadership. Like he's just an amazing human being. And you can see why he played in the NHL for four games this year. Just, um, you know, you can see why they sat a 28 year old veteran, uh, so he could play four games because he's just one of those special people. Um, and having him down the middle with Wong just to me creates just a outstanding one-two punch. And then the last thing we felt we were lacking just around Christmas was if we could find one more, like we have so many responsible two-way guys on top of the, you know, high skill guys. We have like Sidorov and Lazowski and these types of guys, but Lazowski's turned into one of our best back checkers over the last year, which is a testament to his work ethic and zones uh, changing his mentality a little bit as a player. Um, but we felt if we had one kind of more game breaker, I just thought we were in so many games in November and December where we were winning them, but we were winning like three, two and then getting an empty net or two and making it four or five, two, but we were still, you know, a bad bounce away in a game where we might be out shooting them by 10 or 15 shots, but we we're a bad bounce away from being tied with five minutes left or having to go to overtime. And we felt if we could get one game breaking type guy that had that kind of elite skill level, that would put some games away a little earlier and that's what Suzdalev was. He was kind of just the absolute prototype of what we were looking for, and we didn't even know he was going to be coming back to North America until Christmas, so it wasn't something we had in the works for a long time. Um, but, uh, you know, he's also coming in with way kind of way more character than I ever even knew about the kid. Like, I, he's a extremely humble, uh, extremely humble, like very grounded superstar type player like i know i i met the bedard family a little bit in the draft year because we weren't sure if we had regina's pick um that year and we weren't sure what what spot they would finish in and they had lethbridge's pick i believe so we were interviewing all the top guys and we got to know i got to know melanie bedard and and connor a little bit and those guys and you know you send them texts throughout the years of congratulating them on an achievement here and there you, you see them at the draft or whatever so you know melanie and connor both text and said like Suzdalev is an unbelievable kid and you know him and Connor text every day and are, are extremely close and that like our guys are going to absolutely love him as a human being not just a skill level so getting that that assurance was you know really really good because uh, you know we didn't want to bring in anyone that didn't fit our culture and identity and you said like you don't want to have guys that you know, you bring in too many guys and your culture changes. The culture is always going to change when you add anybody because it'll slightly evolve over time with every new person in an organization. But um, when you have people that are like-minded, that all have the same goal in mind and the same, um, you know, principles uh, of how to get there, then that's, I think, the recipe for, you know, why we've been really successful. Well, and you got to see Suzdalev in the playoff series, right? 
So you kind of got a taste of what he's like in that environment. And does that help you decide, you know, yeah, when I get a chance at a player like that, I've seen what he can be like when the the spotlight's big. And I, I yeah. want to have a player here. Like, everybody talked about Bedard, like the one-man army, kind of like beating a top team himself. And, and certainly, like, there's not a lot of other people in the history of hockey like him. Uh, but disposal on defense, I thought, was just, like, incredible in that playoff series. Like, I I knew how good he was. I, th- I thought I knew how good he was going into that series. But, like, he was unbelievably good in that series and just completely changed the game with how he moved the puck up the ice, uh, how he developed as a defender. But he was unstoppable. And Suzdalev was right in the mix of those three, the whole series, where um, – the, all three of them, it wasn't a one-man army. I thought it was like those three, it was a three-headed monster that we had to try and chop. And if you could f- shut down Bedard, then suddenly Suzdalev was wide open. And and then if, if he you shut down him, then, then Svozel was just doing crazy stuff from the back end. So, um, yeah, like having that experience and, and, and having him in our building, you know, for those seven games. And we played two games against him that were hotly contested and sold out games right the last two games of the regular season. So we played them nine times in a row. And um, yeah, certainly we got to see like he's the real deal and just meeting him and seeing his practice habits over the last week and, and, and what he's like as a person has been, you know, just awesome. Like a very pleasant surprise in terms of, um, you know, you never know with a Euro player, like what their, what their background is. And you can ask around a little bit, but uh, to see him in the room and fit in so well, has has been really, really uh, really great to see. Yeah, it can be especially risky with you know the Russian players sometimes, and yeah, not being, but having having a little bit of you know inside track as far as the you know being able to vet a guy. Yeah, that's probably probably helps quite a bit in your case. Right, or what's the intention? Right, you want to know like are they coming back to try and score some goals, or are they here back because they want to win a championship? Like it's, it's when you feel like you've already graduated from junior. Um, we saw it. You know, a few years ago, we got Tristan Robbins back, who was the signed second rounder, and it's certainly an adjustment. They gotta, they gotta get their head around the fact that they're not playing professional hockey like they thought. And but in this case, I think Suze Level wanted to come back to junior, and the fact that he wanted to come back and he wanted to come back to a top contending team, uh, it wasn't about like, oh, how many goals can I get? It's he wanted to go on a long run and get the revenge from what happened last year. He's done a reverse revenge where he wants to kind of go on that deep run instead of being on the other side of it. And, and we needed people like those four key additions. We needed guys that were all in on wanting to win a championship and they weren't guys that are kind of, uh, I'll come in and meet these guys for three months and then I'll go on my way. Like they all feel like they've already blended into the, they blended right into the, the core of what we're about very quickly. So, um, you know, that's why we targeted those guys and that's why they cost so much. <laughs> they weren't guys that had, you know, they weren't, they weren't cheap because uh, none of them bring that, none of them have any reason to be cheap. They were all guys you had to pay every last pick and then another second rounder on top of what you thought was the highest you'd ever go on a guy. And that's what um, those guys kind of demanded. And, and hopefully that's what they're going to bring as they've already showed so far. Now you hear a lot of people say, oh, the Blades are going for it. They really want that first championship. There's that, that hunger for it. Every team wants to win a championship every year. And of course, you get aggressive. You want to have a return. Do you think sometimes people forget, or you know, especially the ones that aren't quite as close to the situation, how 
incredibly difficult it is to win a championship, no matter how good you are, no matter how loaded up you are. I mean, you look at the moves Moose John Swift current made, and they're, they're right there, how good Medicine Hat is. And on the other side, your Prince George's, your Portland's, your Everett, you know that the road is going to be awfully difficult, and there's going to be at least three or four other teams that feel like they should be a championship team. So, you know, how do you feel going down this path and, you know, what level of expectation do you have? Yeah, like there's no, like, we don't want it to happen and, and we really hope it won't. Like, there's no guarantee we get out of the first round. It's hockey. I mean, how many years have you seen it in the NHL where the one seed plays the eight seed? Like Tampa played, uh, was it Piers or Columbus, was it, with uh, Bobrovsky or whatever? And, you know, it's, you know, 4 nothing into the first game. It's 4 nothing in five minutes for for the favorite and suddenly they lose and all of a sudden they're out. Like it's not, nothing's guaranteed. And especially you look at how good Moose Jaw is. Like they, they've been like us. They've been good every year for a long time. Like they don't have off years. They're always good. They've had a core group of players that are really good. And then they went out and aggressively targeted three or four or five guys that they felt would, would take them to a different level. And they went and spent all of the, they went and what we did was, the same as them in terms of they, they targeted guys that they felt played their style and, and I'm sure they felt that they were what they were missing and, and they had to pay dearly for it just like we did. There's no free, there's no cheap guys out there in terms of if you want an elite guy, it's not going to come cheap and they went and did it and they put the kind of cherry on top with Savoy. He's obviously one of the top two or three players in the league and um, added a whole other kind of nuclear element to their team and, and, um, that's the road through the the conference is going to go straight through them. And then you look at what Swift Current did as well. I mean, I put obviously Mustra, uh, obviously Med Hats ahead of them in the standings and uh, this year, but uh, you know, they made some significant acquisitions that have made their D bigger and better. And they've made their forward group better with the addition of a, a game changer like geeky who can win games on his own. And um, yeah, those guys are, are, you know, especially, but you're all, we're not even talking about, Red Deer, like Red Deer is a fantastic hockey club. They had a tough start this year, which, you know, I know when Stones was in his first year with us three years ago, like our first 25 games, our our winning percentage might have been like 500 or a little bit above. And then his next 40 games that year, 45, were like 700. And it takes a while with a new coach with a totally new philosophy. And since they replaced, um, since Connor Walchuk left and, and um, they brought in their new coach, like they had some growing pains at the start, but they've been... If you take their first fifteen or twenty games out, they've been as good a team as almost any in the conference the last two two months, and they're they're going to be an extremely difficult out uh, in the playoffs. And Lethbridge went and added, and um, you Prince Albert could dress anybody, and they would be competitive. They're they're just built that way. They're always competitive. Curtis always builds teams that are hard to play, and they're tailor made to play in Art Hauser in a small arena. And anyone who plays them, if they make the playoffs, anyone who plays them are going to be in for an absolute war in the first round, whether it's us or Moose Jaw or Swift or Med Hat. Like, so there's there's really capable teams all up and down the conference. And then, yeah, you look at Portland and obviously Portland and, and PG have been kind of the top of the, the other conference this season. But, uh, you know, those are, those teams are stacked with talent. So, you know, what what you walk into with when the playoff starts is you're, you may have a – 12% chance of winning a championship or a 21% chance or whatever, however they weigh it when you're the first seed or the second seed. But again, that's still, 
if you told someone they had a 12% chance of uh, getting in a car accident on the way to the work, they would probably call in sick. Like 12% isn't a great, op- you know, it, it it's better than the other teams if they're 8% chance and you have a little bit better odds, but uh, it's certainly not anointed to anybody. And we, we don't feel like it's anointed to us in any way. Like there's so many good teams in the league. And I don't remember a year like this one where even the teams in dead last can like beat the first team on any given night. Like, um, it's really just speaks to the parity of the league and the fact that post COVID, I think a lot of teams want to make the playoffs and not have meaningless games for their fans in the second half. So they haven't, a lot of teams haven't sold off and, and everybody's pretty good. Like it's just, you'd have an off night and you're going to be in a war. Yeah. At, at, at least last night, Kamloops looked like the last place team in the West, but I digress. But, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned PA, and, and if the playoffs started today, you know, that would be your first-round matchup. And, and that's, you know, I've, I haven't been able to experience said things, but that's a, that's a pretty juicy rivalry between the, the Blades and the and, and the Raiders, right? Well, I mean, what's, what's it like to, that, to be in the midst of that? The of the, even before the rivalry of the player, of the teams, like for us internally, it's, it's, it's extremely difficult because you know my right hand man steve hildebrand hilty his son is the starting goalie for prince albert so i've already experienced that you know 10 or 14 times in the last two years when we play prince albert it's like the team you've been bred as a blade for him he's been a blade uh hilty's been with the blades for 20 years and you know you've been bred to hate the prince albert raiders and suddenly they're not only is your son on the team but it's not like he's a a winger or a third line kind of guy like that, you know, you hope he can have a good game and you still beat them. But like he's to beat the team, you have to beat his son, which is, and his son beat us last week in, in a, in a shootout. He stopped seven or eight in a row in the shootout and he stopped 35 out of 36. And, you know, as mad as you are that you didn't, you know, you lose to PA, you're also happy for Max because you've seen him around the ring since he was 10 years old or eight years old. And, um, you know, it's such a conflicting thing for healthy. Like he's so passionate and to have, to have that, that would be just a bizarre wrinkle. Like he said, if that, if we play them in the first round, you know, he doesn't think he'll be able to even come to the games. Like he thinks he has to just lock himself in a hotel somewhere. And, and, you know, it's just, I could only imagine if like, you know, the fate of your own team that you've been building this special thing for years and years, and they feel like this is your year to try and, compete for a championship and then like the path goes through like my five-year-old daughter like i would be like that would be the worst thing in the world so you know if, if, if our success was at their at their expense so you know hopefully we don't have that i mean it would be great for box office and great for the rivalry but on a personal note just because hilty and i are extremely close and have been for a long time now and it's so hard to watch games when his son is in net so um hopefully uh hopefully that isn't the matchup but if it is then all fair and love and war, I guess. And, you know, in talking about potential matchups, you, you, you sort of spoke to how some of these teams have changed. You've had success uh, against Swift Current, I've seen, but how do you view, you know, the challenge in particular of Moose Jaw and Swift Current because they're the teams that change the most of the deadline? I mean, we, we know what medicine hat has, has been and they haven't changed much and red deer not to say that they're not going to be there or Brandon, they still very much could be in the picture, but in terms of the teams that made those big moves at the deadline, how does the challenge of those opponents in the Eastern conference alter uh, as you get set for, you know, those potential matchups in the second, third rounds? 
Yeah, I mean, I've, every year I feel like we're scoreboard watching Moose Jaw, like since eight years ago. It just feels like we're always kind of good around the same times or we're always kind of angling for the same, you know, whether it was first or second in the division or when Winnipeg was the last few years, we were trying to angle against each other for home ice to be the second seed instead of the third seed or fourth and uh, in the division. And it feels like we're always right there with them. So um, we we're fully aware of what they're all about and they've got an extremely high octane top six now with Savoy there and on top of Fergus and, you know, you've got four world junior guys. So uh, any team with four world junior guys is going to be extremely formidable and, and, um, their goaltender has has been outstanding this year. Unger, uh, um, after a tough year last year for him, and he's bounced back and been been like an MVP level player for their team. So we know what they're about, and and we know that if we play them, it's gonna you know you can't take penalties, you can't give them opportunities to to you know create offense because they're going to, and they have too many guys that are just natural scorers not to. Um, so certainly. You know they're they're a major threat. Uh, they're they're always well coached, and Ripper is a great manager, and they've got uh, they've got all the tools to be, you know, a top end team. And and then Swift Current, yeah, like it's, it was a more unique position where a team that was sitting in seventh or whatever they were uh, um, added so much. But um, uh, you look at the the you know the totality of their moves, and and they have so many O fours that are you know drafted guys, and they felt like this was their year, even if the the first half didn't go their way. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be, I think they're as scary a team on any given night. Uh, they don't have the playoff experience that the other teams have for sure in the top end of the league uh, with, you know, Portland uh, always being in the second or third round, PG being in the second round last year, us being in the third round, Moose Jaw uh, second round last year, second round the year before. Um, certainly they're, they're at a bit of a, a deficit in terms of experience, but they brought in a few guys that have, played a ton of playoff games um so that that obviously makes a big difference as well and for them it's just going to be how do they gel as a team over the next two or three months to um they've made the most tinkering and the most moves and the most uh dramatic changes with you know a new coach and a new um identity as a team so they, they're probably the team that you have to look at as like uh the most of a work in progress um just because of the moving parts they have and um and you know just how they're going to have to band as a team and figure out who does what and who plays well together and and then you know when they start the playoffs it'll be their first you know playoff experience in in seven or eight years so they're going to have guys that have to really learn by fire quickly but uh, I don't think they're a team anyone wants to draw in the playoffs certainly. So we've we've kept you for for some time. I probably don't want to you know drag you out all night, but. Is this, is this your, your your tenth year in the in this position, Colin? Uh, no, it's my eighth year as a GM. Eighth year as a GM. So I mean, that's you know, in in, in junior hockey, that's that's you know a lifetime. I mean, what what uh, you know, what 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 have you? What's some of the most interesting things that you've learned? What what's it? How how's the game changed? How how's the, how's the game changed you over that span? That's a good question. Uh, I I haven't. You know, I'd probably have to reflect on that longer to give you a good answer in terms of what, you know, like my mentality eight years ago is probably a little different than today. We used to be very much like, how do we build something sustainable? Uh, how do we build something that's um, built homegrown and good every year was our goal? Um, and and then how do we have like good draft after good draft after good draft? How do we sign all our top 
draft picks and make sure that our list has all the top kids on it and, and, you know, doesn't have, you know, 10 of the first 30 guys in your list are saying, oh, I don't want to sign there or whatever. Like, how do you take that? How do you take where we were and get to where we are now? It's just been a learning process in terms of, um, each year just kind of reevaluating and we wanted to just, you know, it comes right from, from Mike and my dad just being like, let's, you know, build this thing the right way. Don't cheap out on it. Don't, don't take shortcuts, build it the right way. And every year you're building a culture every year, you're building an identity and it just gets stronger and stronger each year. Um, you know, a major turn was when Mitch Love came and we had a great young roster on paper and that culminated in a, I think a near 50 win season there. And then obviously had a good team with the COVID year. And then I think we're one of the best teams in the bubble year. And then we came out of that with, you know, a 50 win year last year uh, or 49 or 50 win last year and on pace for that. So you learn every year as to how to do it. And, and generally it's been by doing not what I did this year uh, by, by going all in and, and, the the beauty of what we did the last seven or eight years was we were always one of the top teams in the league and we never, we always had our own first and second and third rounders or even a couple of them. Um, Cause we were the teams that were kind of selling off guys in the summer that were over ages that we would recoup extra picks and we didn't usually use our own picks. Um, we were always kind of aggressive in that B level market of getting guys that were not the, costing you the first rounders. And then this year it just became like, if not now, when like are we, we're we going to look back in 20 years and say, Hey, why, does, why didn't we go for it in 2023? Like the city's supporting us. They're behind us. The fans want it. The players have earned it. The coaches have earned it. Like if not now. So that's, that's kind of why we changed our perspective, but you're always learning and you're always adjusting. And, um, and you know, I've been really fortunate to have kind of my two right hand guys with me from, from day one with Dan Tenser on the scouting side and Hilti on the, scouting and management side with me and, and we do everything kind of together, the three of us. And, and luckily we've had that continuity and, and we know what all of our strengths and weaknesses are within our group. And, and we all do what we're good at and we, and we get help on the stuff we're not good at. And um, that's been a big thing for us. This is a, a lot ahead of the game uh, for me to ask this question, but what if you find yourself in a position like when Atchie did where, you know, um, you don't have a lot of picks the next few years. You like your prospect base. You don't think you're going to be suddenly bad. You've been designing your team to be consistently good and to not have those fall-offs. But you also know that if you go three or four years without high draft picks, that'll eventually come around to roost. So what is your approach to deal with that? You know, if you're good, you don't want to be selling off assets. Um, no. But at the same time, you don't want your future to be uh, to suddenly hit you all at once? Is it, you know, getting better at those later rounds? Is it signing players and hidden gems? Is it balancing, doing a little bit of selling? How, how did you thought about what you would do in that scenario? Uh, great question. I would, I would ask the same thing. I probably would defer a little bit on that one to, you know, we've kind of decided at the end of the season that whether we win a championship or losing the first round or losing the finals or whatever happens that we'll, we'll reassess in the summer. But yeah, you're right. You're in a situation where let's say you, 
you return a good veteran team that maybe is missing the, some of the elite skill guys, the Wongs of the world and the Mintons graduate and the Sustelevs are gone and, and things like that. But you still have a really good solid team that's built to win. Like you look at Everett, they seem to sell off, but they're always good. Even when they sold off, they're still good because they have a culture of winning and a certain type of player that they procure. And then those players, when they're there for three or four years, they play the Everett way. That's very difficult to play. Um, but you're right. You, you can't look at a depth chart with no first rounders on it and, and say, okay, we're going to be a championship team in five years. I'm the only team I've seen who's ever been able to sustain that level without first rounders being a huge part of it is Portland. Like they haven't, their team is not built on their first rounders at all. Like their top defenseman was a 10th or 12th rounder. Their first line were two list guys or us guys. Like they, they've done it a different way. Um, not to say they've traded their first, like they haven't, but uh, they've traded their first a few times. Uh, but Mike generally doesn't do that, but his team isn't built around first because if you're finishing 21st or 22nd, like we have the last few years, like you're not getting a, the lottery type guy anyway. So you have to go out and get what you think is going to be the best possible kind of counteract to a, to a divisional team taking the number one and two overall picks. You got to say, okay, what do we got to take to go up against these two guys? Cause you're probably not going to find, two guys as talented as you'll find in the top five of the draft when you're picking at 19 or 20. And then in the next round, you're picking at 44. So there's always a big drop. So yeah, you got to find guys in later rounds, but for us, it's going to be an organizational decision as to where we're at next year at the deadline is as to whether you recoup with, with uh, bigger name players or whether you say, okay, we already did X in 2024 and, and we want to go run it back again because we have all these guys with playoff experience or we say, you know, we're, we're fairly average or we're just above average and we feel like we could still stay in the same spot but move one or two guys. So that's going to be all dependent on next year as, as to what, you know, what our mentality is and what the players kind of dictate with their play. You'd be in a really tough spot like Wenatchee was where they bought a team with no assets whatsoever, no, no draft picks and no prospects of you know, higher-end prospects kind of coming in because they didn't pick the last few drafts or whatever late round. So um, they're in a different spot. I think they knew to be sustainable for 10 years, they couldn't, you know, Bliss said, like, we can't we can't go for it because we have these two really great forwards. And, and, and even if we win a championship, we'll be out of business if we don't have a roster to field over the next 10 years. So he made those decisions long before. And I think, by keeping them as long as he did, I think he secured himself a good spot in the standings where he can kind of ride the the help that those top end guys brought. But um, it, it's a tough spot to be in, and I don't I don't want to be in it myself next year. But we we have a good probably good chance of being in that spot where we have to decide what to do with guys. But uh, you know, this is our year. We feel like this is the year we've been building towards, and this is where we've we've put all our energy and investment and um, building for all these years too. So. Um, we'll figure that stuff out in the summer and um, over the course of the next fall. Um, it's certainly not not going to be a fun fun thing to think about, though. I, I know we were going long, but I did have a couple of quick business questions. I, I wanted to ask because you mentioned you're running the rink now. You have the rush. You've added the baseball team, which I'm sure is great for Sask- Saskatoon after ha- not having it for a while. Um, you guys just got into this. You know, running a, a team, running a, an entertainment product when you bought the Blades. What is it that you guys learned as a group, as an organization um, over those years that gave you the confidence not only to say, we're comfortable with what we're doing with the Blades, but we're comfortable enough to take the step 
of branching out into lacrosse, into baseball. And we really, you know, feel like we're getting this, um, not just for hockey, but for the, the entertainment dollar and the sports dollar in general. Yeah, we wanted to just kind of, we felt like we could provide a really good hockey team, good uh, for years to come because we, we built it that way. And it's a long, it was like a long-term sustainable thing where we were good uh, for a long, we'd proven that we can do it and, and be successful at it. And we have really good people in the business departments and the rush were a different entity because I think having the rush gave us the ability then to go to the city and, and get the co-management agreement because we were the, co- we were the anchor tenant with both of the major things. Like certainly not nearly as involved with the rush as I am with the blades. Um, you know, I don't know much about lacrosse. I'm trying to learn as much as I can, but uh, you know, we have good people that have won championships and know what they're doing in those roles. And I'm there as a support to provide a sounding board or provide a template for what the, you know, what they're allowed to kind of what their parameters are for salary caps and all that stuff. But, um, you know, we have great people on the business side to, to run those and the lacrosse operations side. And then the baseball thing was just kind of a totally separate one. That was just kind of something that Hilti and Tyler envisioned themselves to just be like, uh, they're both huge baseball guys. And they just thought, why doesn't the city with 250,000 people have a baseball team? And, um, we could do some fun stuff and kind of do the Savannah banana thing and utilize the fact that we have two pretty big fan bases and databases to tap into. And there's not a lot going on in the summer here in terms of, you know, there's not a ton of, you know, there's no other pro teams or anything to compete against uh, uh, outdoors for baseball uh, in the city. So, you know, we felt it was in a huge risk to take if, if, you know, if it goes terrible, I mean, there's only 1,800 seats, I think. So if it goes, you know, you sell a thousand seats only, which we knew we could sell kind of just off anecdotal evidence. But like, if you sold a thousand seats, it's like, you know, there's a bit of a money loss there, but it's not giant or anything. And if you sell all 1,800 and people love it, then there's a small profit to be made. But it was more of just a way to, you know, have our employees, you know, be active in the summer and not have that long off season and, and give our fan bases for the rush and the blade, something exciting to, to be a part of. And, you know, we can really kind of cross market the three together. And um, the merch has just taken off like crazy with the berries, which is cool. I think the logo is so cool and people love the name and you go around and you see quite a few berries hats in the town and they've never played a game, which is really fun to see. Interesting. Yeah. Cause yeah. Cause it's not like, you know, running a hockey team and, and, and a couple of young kids at home and, you know, running a couple other teams. I mean, hell, why not? Right. I mean, I, I mean, I, you, you, you mentioned you, you, there's people in, in place and that's the, the right yeah, move, like I, but my, it's like my amount of hours spent on the Saskatoon berries each week would be in like zero to one category. So like we've got other people that are passionate about it, that are in the right spots that, that, uh, that want to, that, that, that's their job to do it. And Hilti loves baseball and it's a passion for him. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's not something like I, I'm certainly not uh, an integral part of a lot of the operation in SEG is, uh, is really capable, good people doing their thing. And I'm always there to provide my two cents or kind of come up with any ideas I might pop out of my head and text them to them and, and give them some parameters. But like, you know, we have the utmost trust in Tyler and Jeff and our, our business staff to, to take it from there. Well, and, and I, a follow-up on him mentioning, Chad mentioning kids. I mean, you've been very forthright about the importance of mental health and how much that matters to, to you and your organization and challenges that you've had in your life with it before too. And um, I know 
as somebody who was so career focused and then had a kid and had stepkids, how much that changes your, your mindset and forces you to balance. And then you're just going through the trade deadline, which mixed with the draft has got to be the time that demands the most out of you, both your time and your stress level. Um, and you know, this, the, the mental resources you have to give to that while being a parent of young kids, how have you found balancing all of those things? Um, you know, especially during those times of the year in a job that we know can be so all consuming, especially if you let it and there, there's never an end to it really. So how have you found managing that in the situation you're in right now as a father to very young kids? Yeah, for me, it's just the mindset of like, kind of no matter what's going on with the hockey team, like my my kids and my wife and everything are always first. And I don't like, I'm not, uh, I'm not like the 90 hours a week in the office guy. I never have been. It's not me. And, and I wouldn't have been able to do any of this without having a, uh, an, uh, an amazing wife, uh, first and foremost to help with, with, you know, managing it. But like for me, even if it's like, unless it's literally like the day of the trade deadline or maybe the two or three days before I'm pretty, pretty edgy, if especially if there's like one thing I want to get done or two things I'm trying to get done or something. But like, you know, I, my first priority would be like taking my daughter to swimming lessons before, you know, and if I'm at the swimming lesson and a GM phones or I want to phone them during the lesson, then I do that. But uh, that's just my mentality is just there above the the other stuff and um and then i can get a bit obsessive over things like everybody else when you're in this business like if you want to get a trade done like you think about it all the time and you're thinking of different angles and maybe there's a different approach you could take and and you know certainly there's ebbs and flows with your as your season goes on with like how you know, you may be at the uh, swimming lesson or you may be at the reading a book and, and 80% of you is, is thinking about something else, but you just got to put in the time and energy to do it. And and I'm really also fortunate to have, like, I don't think every team has the support staff that, that I'm able to have with Hilti and Dan, especially, like, I don't have to do a lot of the stuff that I know a lot of managers in the league have to do in terms of the the daily grind of of tasks that a manager has to do and i know there's teams that are run on a smaller budget and stuff or teams that are just run leaner and, and don't have the manpower to do it so one guy's kind of worked extremely thin and i'm able to kind of focus on what i'm good at and and i'm uh, you know and i have you know hilti and dan and other people around that are able to pick up some of the slack and i think other teams would be have one or two guys and just have three guys that i think are all of that elite level of guy that you could ask those two guys, you, they're just elite guys. You can ask them to do anything and they'll do it. And, and oftentimes they're, they're, they were already doing it before you even asked them. So um, that's, that's been huge. I think if I had to do all the stuff myself, I would not be uh, able to at all. Like I, it takes a village for us to be good at, at these things and, and continue to get better. And then I can focus on what I like to do and what I'm good at in, in terms of the parts of the job that I'm good at. Cause there's, a ton of parts of the job I would not be very good at if I was the one who had to do them. So um, that's that's the answer to that. Well, on the the mental health side, I mean, what's what's better than you know fresh air and, and a hot dog, and you know the, that's why we have the berries, right? <laughs> for sure. I don't I don't live in Saskatoon for the two or three months of the summer because our my wife and I's families both live in Edmonton, and we don't really see them much all year because. You know, it's, you see them little pockets here and there for a weekend or whatever. But uh, 
you know, with our grand now having the grandkids and, and the cousins and everything, like it's important for us to spend that time in July and August and a bit of June back in back in Edmonton. So I don't think I'll even be at a lot of Barry's games, but uh, I'll definitely, whenever I'm in town for meetings or whatever, or whenever I can, I'll pop in to to watch those guys play and enjoy it. And uh, I play a lot of tennis in the summer in Edmonton and ball hockey. I've played. Uh, you know, I used to be really competitive. Now I'm just more. Of our, we've gotten old as a team, so we've we've bumped ourselves from the top divisions down every year to <laughs> chasing around. Like I remember, there was years where we were chasing around these dub guys, and every summer, and you're just getting older and older. And even last year, I think we had two or three guys in our division from kids that you scouted or are now 20 years old, and and uh, you're just like getting too old for this running. So uh, we're we're more into it now for the 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 fun of it and but it's something that i love to do in the summer as well and that's in edmonton so um yeah it's uh it's uh it's a good balance to have kind of the two different homes one you know two different like uh places to to live here for like nine and a half months a year and then in edmonton for the other the other bit so ron and speaking of that there's a big edmonton hockey game going on right now that i'm that I'm watching the side of my eye, but to, to, to wrap things up, uh, at least on my end, um, you know, sort of swinging back to that community, you guys came in at an awfully difficult time. You didn't have uh, a reputation yet in running a, you know, a sports team, certainly in that community, the blades ha- had created a certain sense of cynicism because they'd gone for it a couple times and it hadn't worked and they were rebuilding and you were going to go through some bad years and lean years. Um, and so, you know, you had nowhere to go but up in terms of building yourselves in the community, but at the same time, a huge task. Now, eight years into your run as general manager and, you know, the ownership you guys have had of the team around a decade, how do you feel like you guys are perceived now in the relationship you have with the community of Saskatoon now, now that you're, you know, as high uh, as you've been in that run? You know, uh, where do you feel like that relationship is at and, and how gratifying is it to see how strong it's become. Yeah. Like it, at first I think we were kind of thought of as outsiders and, and you know, the team wasn't going to be good. We tried to tell people like no matter what we did, they weren't going to be good for four or five years just because of what was in the shelves. And you had to try and turn the paperclip into the house one transaction at a time. And, and, you know, we tried to do that and, you know, it hit a low point for sure at the end of the, I think we, we ended up having a few more points than the eighth place team in the other division but because of this divisional format in those days you couldn't we didn't make the playoffs and we really wanted to and we were really close and and we had an eight point lead on Prince Albert with I think six or eight games left and we ended up missing the playoffs and that's when we brought in Mitch Love and and, and clearly it was like a is a tough time I think people were we had it was we were it was so tantalizingly close tantalizingly close because we had so many good players coming back and we felt we had a good team on paper and it just didn't work and yeah, like I was just getting absolutely trashed online and trashed in the paper and trashed everywhere else that we were just inept and all this stuff. And we had to be, I had to just like bury my head in the sand for a week. Cause I was like, I, I'm not crazy. Like I know we've built a good thing here. It's we're ready to take off and we should have been in the playoffs that year. But um, that was kind of the, the tipping point for me was, you know, that was where it was like, I don't even know what to do. Like, I just don't even want to leave the house. Cause like it just, it was just, brutal and I knew we had put in so much work to get we had a great team and we had a great we were starting to build a culture and we were starting to do all these things and then uh, 
yeah, things sometimes don't go your way, and we missed the playoffs, and and that's when I think when Mitch came, it really kind of, you know, we had that huge year, his first year, where we'd gone on, a, we went on a huge run after Christmas, and we only lost a few games in the second half, and I think we got the fan base engaged again, and um, if you look at those years in the, to now, those six seven years ago, I think we've been one of the top teams in the league every year in terms of winning percentage over that time. We're probably right at the top and, and we've been really good. So it's really gratifying now for people to be like, they know we've built something good and they're proud of it. And they really like high five you in the hallway in the concourse. And they see you at the grocery store and they they love the blades to get in and you see hats all over the town and shirts and jerseys and stuff. It's just, it's just so different than it was five or six years ago. So it's just been nice on the personal side to, you know, to get through that fire and, and come out on the other end and kind of have keep the belief in, in yourself and your group of people around you that you are doing the right things and to kind of ignore the noise. And and then it took some, you know, really good players and coaches and, and everybody to come together and get what we've done the last, you know, six, seven years. You know, from from this side of the this project, I mean, you know, Colin, you're always a, a, a really fun you know, guest to have on the show and, you know, you've given us our time a few times and, you know, I always like having Les Lazarick on the show. He's, he's great. You know, we've had Wacy Rabbit on. He's, he's fantastic. You mentioned Mitch Love just now. I mean, he's come on the show. He's fun. I mean, Brendan sonny has been on the show. I mean, it's, I, 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 I can't do a, a Saskatoon Blades show every week or, or, or I would, cause there's, there's so many, you have so many good people in, in your organization that, you know, are, are, are generous to us and, and have good conversations. And I just, I, I just wish there was, there was more, more room to, to, to fit them all in. No, thanks for saying that. But it's, yeah, it's, we're super fortunate. We've got great people and it takes great people and people that have been in their positions for a long time and people that are really into the culture and the, not just self-advancement, like advancement is what everybody's in the business for, but you know, doing it the right way. And, and, and we've just tried to build something really sturdy and strong over time that's built on the right, right for the right reasons and treating people really well and treating kids, the kids really well and giving them all the resources we can. And, and if you do that for long enough, then hopefully, you know, the results show up and um, you start to get, you know, whether you get the, the praise or whatever for it from the average person is that's a, that's a bonus, but like what you do it for is the people that are playing the games and coaching the games and helping the players and training the players. And, and then you do it for the fans that have been coming out no matter what since the beginning. And then you do it for the fans that are just getting back on the bandwagon. And um, that's, that's the reason you do it. And if there's some accolades and stuff that people are appreciative of it, then that's, that's really great and affirming, but it's, you know, you have to be able to withstand the highs and the lows of that because uh, one night you're getting high five by every fan in the building, and then you go on a five game losing streak, and everyone will yell at you. So it's just the way it is. It's this, you have to take it for what it's worth, and kind of have that self worth inside and self belief of what you're doing. And the outside noise can't really be, um, it can't be fatal <laughs> either way. Uh, again, we really appreciate your time, Colin, and uh, you know, best of luck going forwards. You know, down the down the stretch here. Thanks, guys. Anytime. I really love talking about hockey and junior hockey, especially. And I wish there was more shows out there like this one, where you guys dig into the the good issues and and you guys support the league and support kind of 
talking about it and, and getting people excited about it. So that's uh, my favorite thing is to talk about the league and the other teams and the players. And it's an awesome league with, with so many great teams and managers and players and coaches. So anytime I can get to chat about it, it's kind of, that's why we do this. So, um, anytime.